Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast today. We've got Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farben, and I, Hazel Burton. On the show today, we've got a bumper round of recommendations, including our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Plus, I've got a sci-fi related quiz, so I'm going to describe the movie plot and the guys have to guess which movie I'm describing. So, let's start the show. Dan's back. Hi. Hello. And uh, John's here in body, if not in spirit. (laughs) I am. Well, there's been spirits involved. There are plenty (laughs) of spirits involved. It is coming close to 6pm and that's less than 12 hours since I stopped drinking and I feel like I'm never going to eat or drink again. Which, of course, is not true. Certainly the latter one. (laughs) We are going to the pub after the podcast, but I will be drinking... Is that still a thing? A non-alcoholic beverage. <laughs> Can't give you away from a pub. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I've, I've been away. Yes, you have. What have uh-huh. you been doing? I was taken on a surprise trip to Disneyland for my birthday <gasps> in oh, Paris. Oh, by your lovely fiancé. By my lovely fiancé. Mm. Did, did you have any idea like, where you were going? Or? Not the slightest inclination. Uh, she has not really been that keen on Disney and theme parks. We are going to Galaxy's Edge in California next year. But I'd been told we were going for a few days to London to do some of the things that we've never done in London before. Mm-hmm. I couldn't think what those were, but the idea of Disneyland had never entered my mind. But because I like it so much, she took us there, which Aww. was very, very She's kind. A yes, she is. Uh, so we rode Star Tours quite a lot. Brilliant. How was, was it? euphemism. No. <laughs> no, we literally rode the Star Tours ride okay. quite a lot because I kept asking to go and do okay. Star Tours again. They have revamped it since last time I was there, which was about eight years ago. It's now a 3D ride. Same general principle of you're in the Star Tours Star Speeder 1000. And they're still kind of flight simulator. Still a flight simulator, but there are various different versions now. So you can go on it multiple times and go to different planets. So the first time we went to Kashyyyk and saw some Wookiees and we ended up on Coruscant. The final time we rode it, we went to Hoth and then ended up on Naboo. And my favourite one was set in the sequel era. And we started off being confronted by Kylo Ren in the First Order, escaped into hyperspace, went to Jakku, got involved in a chase with some TIE fighters through the junkyards, and then got a message from Poe Dameron asking us to come to Crate to help the Resistance out, and ended up zooming through those caves with all of the stalactites and stalagmites Mm -hmm. that were themselves inspired by the original Star Tours. So that was a genuinely thrilling experience. I was buzzing for hours Mm. after that. And does it make much difference which one you get? Because presumably it's random which one you get. It is random. And it looks like each one has two different sections. You visit two planets. Mm -hmm. So you might get Naboo at the start of one. And you could go on again. And the same Naboo section could be the second part Uh, of the next time you go and do it. Some were better than others. But the messages you get on the holonet from a famous Star Wars character change as well. Admiral Akbar turns up quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And there was one occasion where you got a message from Leia. And that was exactly the reaction <laughs> of everyone in there. There was just oh. this intake of breath. It was kind of part a sigh, part a gasp, and part just this, oh, 
remembering that Carrie Fisher is no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was just me that still got emotional every time I saw her on a screen, but everyone in that cabin had the exact same reaction. I don't know how I'm going to cope with the rise of Skywalker. But Star Tours is worth going to Disneyland for alone, in my Mm -hmm. view. The rest of it was great as well. Well, that sounds an awful lot better to the exhibit I went to in Las Vegas recently. It was Las Vegas. Yes, Las Vegas was awesome. Um, I had a day to entertain myself and I went to the National Atomic Bomb Testing Museum, which was really cool. <laughs> Were there fridges? <laughs> <laughs> Strangely, no, that's not actually scientifically proven to uh, be useful. Well, I saw this documentary uh-huh. and this What's guy, it was called... It was called... Indiana Jones and the... Oh, yeah, Crystal yeah, then, no, that's that's not a documentary, that's rubbish. Sorry, go on. <laughs> um, that was awesome, but then I went to the Marvel Station, which I think you might have done in London. I did. Yeah, it paid $35 for half an hour or so, and it was de- it was publicised as interactive, and it was kind of a, a shit Hawkeye, not that I know a good Hawkeye. <gasps> oh. <laughs> um, just kind of, yeah, talking to us as agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then letting us in. It was nothing more new than Age of Ultron. Yes, that was the same. They'd added a Black Panther section in London. So Mm -hmm. there were Black Panther costumes and vibranium beads and Mm -hmm. Wakandan music and Mm -hmm. things like that. I bought some vibranium beads from (laughs) Ancelus. That's what happens when Wakanda opens its borders (laughs) to the world. Yeah, it was it was it was cool seeing all the costumes and um, you know a lot of the props, but I I want I wanted more, but I always do. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> okay, on to our recommendations segment. So um, yeah, Dan, tell us what you've been enjoying recently. Well, since I was last on the podcast, I have read another book, so I have another recommendation for the Nerdfest Library. Mm-hmm. This one is a new book by Empire Editor at Large Helen O'Hara, and it's called The Ultimate Superhero Movie Guide in which she takes an exploration through the origins of what's now the most popular genre of cinema. Starting with Richard Donner's Superman, going through the original Batman films, animated features like Mask of the Phantasm, X-Men, Spider-Man from Sam Raimi, into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the DC Extended Universe, or is it the Expanded Universe? DC Worlds, I think it's called. Is it DC Worlds now? And ending with, appropriately, Endgame. Nice. So all of the major films and series get four to six pages of attention. And then there are little sections that break that up with things like the best superhero casting, the best supervillain casting, comic book movies that weren't based on a comic book, and some of the less successful offerings. And then there's a lovely tribute to Stanley mm. at the end. I love Helen O'Hara. I read her 80s movies book. But that was really, really good. I love listening to her on the Empire podcast as well. She's so eloquent and, and really, really interesting. Yeah, there's a genuine enthusiasm, even for the movies that she admits objectively might not be fantastic, like Constantine with Keanu oh, Reeves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's got a lot of love for it, and that comes through on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's made me want to go back and watch a lot of things I haven't seen for a while, like her write-up of Watchmen made me really, really eager to watch mm-hmm. that again. There's the new TV show of that coming out yes, very soon, isn't there? As well? yeah. New trailer for that broke just yeah, a day so, or two ago. I haven't seen so it yet. The other day, it's very good. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope it'll be good. Damon Lindelof's on a roll with The Leftovers, having recently finished, so hopefully that'll be good. And the main thing from the book that made me want to go back and reassess a film was Blade, which mm-hmm. is really being positioned now as a forerunner of all of these superhero films. 
when I watched Blade, uh-huh. I watched it as a vampire movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of it as a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. But today, especially with Mahershala Ali going to be playing Blade in a few years' time, it made me really want to go back and watch it through that superhero lens and see just how influential it was because Helen O'Hara really positions it rather than X-Men or Spider-Man as being the start of the modern mm-hmm. comic book movie boom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mahershala Ali is amazing casting yeah. as well. It'd be nice to see a Blade movie with a central cast who actually care about what they're doing. Yeah, Wesley but, Snipes is Blade and always will be Blade. Yeah, that's the point that O'Hara makes in the book. Uh, Snipes, it was key to Blade succeeding in the first film. He'd given up by Blade Trinity, which doesn't get much of a mention in the book compared to one and two. But if it wasn't for it was Wesley... Hard to justify it. <laughs> yeah, if it wasn't for Wesley Snipes really going for it in that first film, that might have had effects that were very, very different for the whole industry. It was having that major star take a comic book role seriously and not a major one like Superman that made a huge amount of difference and showed studios that you don't have to be Superman or Batman to have a film made and it be successful. So does it cover things like The Crow, things yes. like that? Or uh, what was that? Is it Alec Baldwin? Um, the Shadow. Yeah. That gets a mention, okay. yeah. Everything from Billy Zane as The Phantom to Mystery Men to... Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, <laughs> through to every film in the MCU, up to Endgame, all gets covered in some amount of detail or other. Great. All of us here like our superhero movies, and if you like them too, you'll find at least one film in there that you might want to go back and watch again. Also, it contains several Hamilton references, which <gasps> yes, you would you hope for from Helen O'Hara, and she does not disappoint. <laughs> Excellent. Peter, how about you? Uh, yeah, I, I had a choice this week of two different things. There was either a penny wise or a penny worth. <laughs> so <laughs> what have one, you gone for? Well, one was it chapter two, mm-hmm. but the other one is Pennyworth. And I'll talk about that because people perhaps won't have heard of it because it's being shown on a fairly obscure channel in the States. It doesn't really have any well-known stars. It grew out of Gotham. Some people really like it. Some people really aren't so keen. For me, Gotham was best when it went a bit mad and a bit strange and had its own little world. Occasionally on times it just was going over the same ground. The bad guys and the good guys would keep meeting almost every week and nothing would ever get resolved, nothing would change. At its best, it created this strange sort of gothic world and at times starts to look very much like the movies did. Sadly, the Joel Schumacher movie. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. No, it was always the dark and gloomy Batman, not the neon Batman. (laughs) So the strange thing for Pennyworth, which you may know from the name, is it's Batman's butler. And this is a spin-off series based on Alfred the Butler, which is just insane as an idea of what on earth he would spin off. So um, is this Alfred walking around the Bat Mansion cleaning up? <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. I mean, Alfred, for me, was always one of the best things about Gotham. But it was played by Sean Pertwee. And just the way he played the part, there's something funny about English characters in American TV series in the same way that Spike was always really funny and Buffy. There's just something about the way they can go around swearing and it's like not the Americans notice that just mm. seems somehow subversive and fun. And Sean Pert, we always brought that to the part. This guy, it's not the same. It, it's very much not like they're trying to recreate that. It's set in a sort of imaginary 60s London, not the sort of Austin Powers, ridiculously colourful 60s London, more a London of the craze, except there are like blimps overhead. The police go around with face masks like Japanese tourists. And there's all these just little odd off-kilter things that just tell you it's not our world exactly, even though it has some of those elements of 60s stuff. When it's at its best is when it brings some of that Avengers madness, 
So you have like grannies with machine guns or uh, <laughs> the police in the Tower of London are all wearing beefy to costumes with you know special little badges on the front. It's all very weird. It doesn't look like any sort of England we really know. The lead character's likeable. He's very much like Michael Caine in Alfie, played that way as a bit of a sort of wide boy. Michael Caine did play Alfred. Yes, yeah. of course he did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was, so it's, it's was Alfred Alfie just older? Alfie Alfred. I'm so confused. Uh, his, Michael Caine playing Alfred was no logical relation to, to Michael Caine playing what he Alfie. played as Alfie. No. I'd like to retcon it as a prequel. <laughs> <laughs> About the only people you would recognise is Paloma Faith, who plays this sort of Ruth Ellis style, very mad crime person. <laughs> And I'm only about three or four episodes in and watching the pilot, we're just like, oh, I don't really see the point. Mm-hmm. And then by the second or third one, you start to understand it a bit more, understand how its world works and it gets good. So I hope it stays good. <laughs> I can maybe let you know at the end how it plays out. Where is it available? I believe it's on Stars in the States. It's one of those not quite so common channels. It will presumably make its way over here yeah, fairly Gotham soon. Probably shown Channel on 4. E4, I think. Yeah. So likely if it carries on and doesn't get cancelled it'll probably come over to e4 yeah as well so is is this actually set in the same universe as gotham then is it it a spin-off it is yes it's supposed to be the same person so gotham had alfred as this sort of ex-sas person who you know doesn't like use violence but is quite adept with it when needed and will do anything to protect the waynes so yeah in the pilot he meets thomas wayne who's batman's dad he does a job for him at that point and the pilot gets a bit too stuck in trying to link the things together. It's better when it's in its own world a bit more. But yeah, it very definitely is officially part of the Batman mythology is the idea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, keep your eyes open for that and see what you think when you try it. Will do. Is it worth a penny? <laughs> hey. Hey. So I've been to see something absolutely wonderful recently. I've been helping Ian McKellen, sorry, Sir Ian McKellen celebrate his 80th birthday mm. with his uh, one-man stage show called Ian McKellen on stage with Tolkien, Shakespeare, others and you. And the you is quite important because I wouldn't actually describe it as a one-man show. He makes the audience part of a double act. He really, really involves them. He opens um, the, the, the entire theatre goes to black and out booms the Lord of the Rings theme. And then there's just a spotlight on him as he recites the Gandalf death scene from Fellowship as Tolkien wrote it. And it is one of the most powerful things I've ever, ever seen. I was in tears just watching it. Basically, it's a, a wonderful look into his life. We kind of delve into his early excursions into the theatre, going to see Peter Pan for the first time, becoming immersed in like Ivan Novello musicals, where he claims he had his first erection. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Interesting. He does deal with his activism. He does talk about when he realised he was gay, the difficulties of coming out to his mother and the scene at the time. The second half is dedicated to Shakespeare. So he has all 36 Shakespeare plays in front of him and asks the audience to call out plays and he would either recite a monologue from them or offer some sort of experience he had when he was playing apart Mm. from that. And um, generally it was such a privilege to be able to watch him act but also be in his company for a couple of hours. Um, There's no other actor that I can think of that can hold the audience in the palm of his hand. And it just felt so special being there. Mm. On the way out, I overheard um, someone say, do you know what? I'm never ever going to see something that good ever again. And I'm genuinely inclined to agree. It was so special. 
all downhill from here then. <laughs> well, yes, true. But yeah, he's. I think he's still touring with this until 2020. So hopefully you'll be able to catch it. If not, go and watch something with Serena McKellen in it because I've got a whole new appreciation for everything that he brings to the role and... I just, I don't think we'll see anyone like him ever again. But he's looking mightily fit for an 80-year-old, so yeah. hopefully we'll have him around for a bit longer. I can confirm that because after he performed it at the Edinburgh International Festival, we did bump into him on the street in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. walking into a very nice vegetarian restaurant. And he looked very well and was mm-hmm. wearing a bright yellow scarf, which is how I could spot him from <laughs> a hill away. And I thought, could that be Ian? That is Ian yeah. McKellen. And we were accidentally stood in the doorway of said restaurant trying to decide whether we wanted to go in when he approached. Uh, we resisted the urge to ask whether he could pass. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. I'm sure he's yeah. never heard that before. Never, never, ever, ever yeah. would he have heard that. He would have found it highly original and entertaining and invited us for tea. He's so full of warmth and I don't think it's an act. He would do this play at theatres that he has an affinity with and Newcastle is one of them. The night before, he appeared in um, Les Miserables as a <laughs> just as like a walk-on part, just busy. <laughs> oh, let, let me be in the play! And yet, there's there's one uh, particular Shakespeare play where he just falls to his knees and does an amazingly emotional monologue and jumps right back up again. And I was like, like "Oh, that would take me twice as long to get up back on the floor." <laughs> he's more than twice my age. So yeah, it was a love letter to the theatre. A privilege to watch. But what I also loved as well, he's not taking any profits from this. He, he just does it because he wants to. Every theatre that he does this performance in, he says, you take the money and you choose what to do with it. So for Newcastle, they, it was dedicated to encouraging more young people into the theatre who were underprivileged and, and going through some sort of trauma to get them into theatre, try and make their lives better. So he's just an all-round mm. super awesome human being. Wow. <laughs> and what's the show called? Ian McKellen's Greatest Hits, maybe. <laughs> it's called Ian McKellen on stage with Tolkien, Shakespeare, Others and You. Hmm. Lovely. He's a terrible great. football player, though. Just nobody will pass. Uh-huh. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> so, John, what have you been watching? Uh, I have been watching the slow disintegration of my brain functions. <laughs> so Mandy again then. Yeah. Um, How many brain cells do you think you killed last night? Several million. Mm. I, I don't think there's anything left in there other this, than this abject misery. <laughs> can you muster up the courage to talk for at length? I can talk briefly about my recommendation, which is the Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I think most of us have seen. Nope. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. A majority of us have seen it. So briefly, this is a film set in the late 60s, sort of the tail end of the golden age of Hollywood. Leonardo DiCaprio is a fading star of old school westerns who is probably struggling to adapt to the new Hollywood. He's very out of fashion. And his stuntman stroke best friend stroke general dog's body is Brad Pitt. They live in a house next door to one Sharon Tate. And bearing in mind we are in the late 60s, we are painfully aware of what is about to happen to Sharon Tate. And that casts a kind of long shadow over the film. Are we going to do spoiler free? I don't know. I I really think the ending is really divisive, isn't it? For those that have seen it, I love the ending and I love what it does. I think you were less keen, Peter. Would that be correct? I liked it a lot. And a lot of the reasons I really liked it, I think, 
Peter and I have talked about this, are the same reasons Peter doesn't quite like it so much. <laughs> and they're the very same things. So uh, divisive is probably the right word for it. Yeah, I mean, the film's about three hours long, and the first two hours are very loosely connecting vignettes. Kind of a little bit like Pulp Fiction, almost, in that there's different stories going on that are only loosely interconnected, but all centred around Leonardo DiCaprio and mm. Brad Pitt. Is the chronology all over the place? No, it's, it's chronological. Oh, but it's it, weird for a Tarantino film. Mm-hmm. It, there's a big jump forward in time, about two-thirds of the way through. Yeah, and it does intercut with clips from DiCaprio's character Rick Dalton's films. So sometimes you'll get extended scenes from one of his fictional films, and Tarantino has said he's created a filmography for Rick Dalton of everything he was ever in. And some are more fanciful, real films where Rick Dalton replaces the actual actor who was in the real version of the film, and they put DiCaprio in the real film and show it as if Rick Dalton had been in that picture. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were saying that he was actually in the film in that no, world. No, it was, they were saying it was more, a, this he was, was almost cast or something like yeah. that. But mm-hmm. for us as the viewer, we see what would have happened. Mm-hmm. It is long and meandering, but I was surprised that the three hours were over when the film finished. I thought, well, that can't be it. I thought this was a three-hour-long film. It's a chance to hang out with these characters who aren't completely likeable, but have all got elements to them. Sharon Tate is the most relatable. She goes out and does everyday normal things, whereas Brad Pitt's character's backstory is a little more obscured and potentially a little more violent. There are long extended sequences like when Pitt goes to visit the ranch where members of a certain family might reside. Yeah, I think, I think we can talk about the Manson family in the yeah. film. But I think yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty open. And it, it, that particular sequence, is, it's almost reminiscent of the birds. It's one of the strange things mm-hmm. about yeah. it. Because all, all these girls are sitting around watching him as he walks through their farm. It has this very strange, creepy atmosphere. It's a lot of very separate sequences. And all mm. the sequences, I think, work really well. It's also really good creating the, the world of that time. Yes. A lot of the movie is actually him just driving around in a car while they create the world around him. Yeah. Which is kind of bizarre. For me, its only problems were that it didn't have a single through line of a plot. Yeah. But that's almost what I liked about <laughs> it, as those long extended sequences, I enjoyed each of them by themselves and didn't actually mind all that much that there wasn't a strong single plot line mm-hmm. through it. I was interested enough in the characters that there being a plot didn't matter. Mm -hmm. What was interesting for us when we watched it is we went with somebody who didn't know what had happened. It seems quite common for people to not Mm -hmm. know that. And yeah, that was interesting just hearing their point of view after the film. They read the film very differently, whereas for us, every time Sharon Tate's mentioned, you have this sense of foreboding of Mm. what's going to happen imminently. And it's just not the same for people who don't know that. They just think it's a girl walking around town. Yeah. So they see the movie in a very different way. Mm. Did it work for the people you saw it with who didn't know the Sharon Tate story? He said he was a little bit confused if you're not aware of the history of it. The way that the film ends might seem a little bit incongruous or potentially Mm -hmm. anticlimactic. If you're aware of what happened, it has a huge amount more impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Though I was kind of talking in terms of what I found less satisfying. I enjoyed the film a lot. At no point was I bored and it certainly didn't feel like three hours or it felt like a pleasant three hours. You enjoyed spending the time in people's company and taking the time over a scene was quite fun. Mm -hmm. It's just whether it narratively all hung together was what I had doubts yeah. of. How are the leads? DiCaprio put on screen together for the first time. How did, how did they carry it? 
Um, pretty well, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they look like they've known each other for years. It's that sort of feeling, which is what they were trying to create. DiCaprio was really good showing the struggles of an actor. He connects with a character in a book he's reading and almost has a breakdown thinking about how he relates to that character. He fluffs a line in a take and it cuts to him in his trailer. He just goes off on himself, shouting at himself, breaking things. The frustration of it is so tangible. He's really, really good. Uh, Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, is really good as well. She captures the charm and the effervescence of Mm -hmm. um, being part of the new Hollywood at the end of the 60s with the auteurs rising up and this new generation taking over from the likes of DiCaprio's character. The scene where she's in the cinema watching her film is just a beautiful piece of acting. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, she didn't have any lines in it, I don't think. She just sat watching herself and... Listening to people react to yeah. her character making jokes. There was a degree like of criticism saying the movie didn't give her many lines at all throughout the entire movie, which is fairly true, but she must have a huge amount of screen time through mm-hmm. the movie because it does focus on that mm-hmm. quite a bit. Yeah. On the casting front, it was nice that in the supporting cast, that theme is reflected by having the sons and daughters of famous actors, mm-hmm. the next generation playing supporting roles. So Andy McDowell's daughter is a member of the Manson family. Maya Hawke is in it, and she's brilliant for the short amount of time she's on screen. People will have seen in Stranger Things. Yeah. Although I did hear that several members of Bruce Lee's family had a bit of a problem with the film. Is there a particular reason why that might be? They portray Bruce Lee as quite an arrogant, cocky guy who thinks he can beat anyone in a fight. And he fights Brad Pitt, and Brad Pitt... (laughs) kind of doesn't get beaten by Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. So it implies that Bruce Lee's this loudmouth who can't back it up by not being able to beat a stuntman like Brad Pitt. But that sequence takes place in a scenario where it could just be Brad Pitt telling the story and implying that he got the better of Bruce Lee, even though we probably really didn't. Mm. So it depends how you interpret it. I could see how people were offended by it, particularly as he's one of the only non-white characters. Right. I think the recreation of him felt really good. And also Damien Lewis's Steve McQueen. Yes. Which is only a minute or two, but it, it felt really good. It yeah. really felt like it was him there. Yeah, I don't think Tarantino meant anything offensive by it. So speaking of Tarantino, where would you rate this in his filmography so far? I'd probably rank it quite highly. It's one that I would happily go back and watch again, whereas... Others that I enjoyed the first time I watched them, like The Hateful Eight, I've had no desire to re-watch The Hateful Eight. Uh, this one I could happily put on again and spend some time with those characters. Being in the world. More, more time. Yeah. Especially re-watching it, I think it would benefit from a second watch. So definitely the top half. I think my opinion will only be solidified when I see it again, <laughs> I think. But for me, yeah, I'd place it sort of in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. Top end for me. I really like Pulp Fiction still. Mm-hmm. But I think I would rank it above Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight. Like maybe the top three or four. Mm-hmm. I think Jackie Brown is maybe still my favourite Tantino film. How many What's chicken royales out of ten? <laughs> I would give it eight chicken royales and a very good dog who was in the film. There is a very good dog in that mm-hmm. film. <laughs> I'd give it seven and fries. <laughs> I would give it nine red apple cigarettes. Ooh. Look who's just walked in the room. It's the one and only Ian McLaughlin. Hello, everyone. I am so sorry I'm late uh, for those listening. I'm an hour late for this recording. And you're, you're about five months late. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but I am super chuffed to be back in here. 
Yeah, we love to have you back. It's awesome. You can say we love you. <laughs> we well, we do. Oh, we do. How nice. <laughs> we do. We, we've missed you very much, very deeply. I've missed me too. Mm. <laughs> you got anything to talk about? <laughs> um, Any recommendations? Uh, yes, I have one recommendation, which is don't drink with John. <laughs> yeah. It's a game called Merge Dragons. It's essentially a sort of mining stroke farming game. Little dragons go around collecting flowers and life orbs to free up this cursed land. Uh, you merge various things together and you get bigger things, then bigger things and bigger things, and you work your way up. It's um, unbelievably boring. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> repetitive. Sorry, this sounds like one of John's recommendations. <laughs> but it is. It's unbelievably repetitive. You essentially spend about three hours a day hitting the same button 100,000 times just to get something big enough to... Sounds to addictive, solve. though. <laughs> and, and you're constantly pushed to spend money and you have to watch adverts. It's everything a game shouldn't be, yet it's unbelievably addictive. Unbelievably addictive. I've been playing for two weeks now and I'm probably doing about five hours a day. Like I wake up at four in the morning and just go, oh, I could sleep again. Or I could just do two hours of Emerging Dragons. So uh, I don't recommend it, but if you want a game <laughs> that will just waste your life, just perhaps you're waiting to die or something. It's a good way of uh, just wasting that time away. Uh, Merge Dragons, I highly not recommend it, but get it. I'm sure that'll resonate with somebody out there. <laughs> there was a there was a game a while back where it was just a block, wasn't it? Uh, it was Peter Molyneux who did Populous and so on, and he released this mobile game, and it was literally just a block that you could tap, and bits of the block would fall away. You had to tap the block repeatedly to demolish it, but everybody in the world was playing with the same block. And the idea was that somebody wouldn't get the final piece and unlock the prize inside the box. The prize was something like being starring in a video game or it was something funny like that. And then I don't think they really delivered on what they promised. Is that right? Peter Molyneux not delivering on a promise is... Uh, <laughs> unheard of. Mm-hmm. I think it was, yes, you got to be the controller of another game that he released, but there was some controversy over not getting what they were promised as a reward. I also have another recommendation, which is not a game actually a channel it's called dust if you're a fan of uh, short sci-fi movies and experimental sci-fi then dust is the channel for you it's free and it basically hosts and creates sci-fi shorts from all over the world some are terrible but some are absolutely genius and it's a great place just to go in and have a look at and see what what's currently happening and the thoughts mm. um, around sci-fi at the moment and, mm. and science it's a yeah, really good channel you can see it. it's on facebook and on youtube and on all the other platforms dust Okay, so it's quiz time. I have been reading a very good book, which I got from Barter Books in Alec, and it's called Must See Sci-Fi Movies. So I have got a quiz based on this book. I'm going to describe 10 sci-fi movie plots, and you need to buzz in with the name of the movie. Um, you get two points if you can do that just like that. Uh, I'll give you one point if you need the year as well. So we've got two teams. Ian and Dan as one, and Peter and John as... Oh, what's left of as, Yeah, what's left of John. We are as one. Dan and Ian, do you have a, uh, a common sound you're going to use to buzz in? John, no! <laughs> okay. Do, do that quietly. John, John no! <laughs> Less quietly. Look at his little traumatised face. John, John no! <laughs> or, or we could do the, the Trifford scream. <laughs> That's going to be pleasant to listen to <laughs> for the viewers at home. So, John, what, what noise should we have? Ooh, it's an alien. Convincing. Oh, we can have exterminate. All right, we'll go exterminate. Yep. 
Half the battle is remembering the sound. <laughs> that's what, that's what, I think that's the only thing that defeated me against uh, Dan in the Harry Potter quiz. <laughs> that and the fact that he's a lot better. That and my superior knowledge. <laughs> so they start off fairly easy, but then they gradually get more hard. <laughs> they get stiffer. Okay. Ooh, an alien. <laughs> so you're just easing us in then? Yes. So yes. Really slowly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I find it better to ease it in once it's got harder, personally. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. We're talking about sci-fi alien probes here, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> movie plot number <laughs> Okay, movie plot number one. A post-apocalyptic cyborg travels in the past to kill... John Rhodes. Oh, I thought I heard... Terminator. Correct. 1984. I believe it's actually the Terminator. <sighs> As soon as you were the one being picky about whether it's Terminator 2 is a different character to Terminator 1. I still stand by that. Yeah, it's a different robot. I, I agree. You. I wasn't on that episode, but I agreed with John. Can <laughs> mm-hmm. I have his point for that? Nope. nope. Okay, movie plot number two. You ready? Yep. Okay. Yep. An inventor in 1899. John No, the time machine? Correct. Yay. <laughs> Would you like the whole movie? Plot? I was going to think, like, do I, do I read oh, out? Oh, 2002? 1958. 1950. George Pal. I was going with the Guy Pierce one. <laughs> this is 1960. 1960. Yeah. So the, the whole plot, uh, an inventor in 1899 London constructs a machine that sends him 800,000 years into the future, where he encounters a strange dystopian society. He could have just come forward 120 years into the future. <laughs> It's actually a, a brilliant piece of writing. It's Jules Verne, mm. of course. H.G. Wells. Not yeah. Jules, it's not Jules Verne. No, I think of Jules Verne. H. Around Wells. the world in 80 days. But what is fantastic about it, because it was, when was the book written? It was like, um, it was early 1900s, early I think. Early 1900s, and he, and, and he foreshadows nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when the, the, the main character gets 800,000 years in the future, there are these air raid sirens, and they're the thing that call all these people who live um, above ground. The LOE. To be uh, mm-hmm. eaten and slaughtered by that underground lot. The Morlocks. Mm-hmm. There's some beautiful stop motion effects in the film as well. Really, really the, nice. Some of the descriptions that Wells has, because the machine breaks, and even after that bit, he keeps going forward. Mm-hmm. And there's this vivid coastal scene of giant crab creatures in the final tides at the dying of the planet, and then he just ends up back at dinner. <laughs> right, we're uh, a two-all, all to playful. Movie plot number three. Is this book chronological? Yes. Okay, so we can get a rough idea by how far through the book you're opening it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> when an inventor is killed by his wife, his brother and a police detective learn the gruesome truth about his failed teleportation experiment. Freeze! No, John, no. <laughs> Accelerate. John, no. Freeze. In and down. The fly. Correct. Uh, freeze. <laughs> freeze, <laughs> punk. Freeze on my mum will shoot. New choice. Mm-hmm. 1986 for the Jeff Goldblum mm, one. Yeah, but that's but not That wasn't the yeah. original, was it? No, the original was, was, I think, early 60s, was it? Or late 50s? 55? 1958. 58. And there's a hilarious scene at the end of the, in the original film, because obviously the effects were terrible there, and it turns into fly at the end, an actual fly, and they've basically... Grafted this human head on the fly, but it really bad. It wasn't CGI in those days, it was compositing. And it's like, help me, help me. It's hilarious. Number four. Martial law is declared in the city of Los Angeles. John, no! <laughs> Judge Dredd. Incorrect. Oh. Exterminate. Phase you out now. Es- escape from LA. Incorrect. Right, both back in play. 
when a police officer, an FBI agent, and two scientists track an invasion of giant mutated killer ants, the LA Storm. Exterminate yep. them. Correct. Yeah, it's a good movie. Four points all. Number five. A boy from a broken suburban home befriends... John No. John No had it first. E.T. the extraterrestrial. Correct. Was that one of your shameful gaps still? It remains a shameful gap, Mm. yes. I've seen most of it, but just in different bits. Is there a porn version called E.T. the extraterrestrial? Phone homo. (laughs) Eat eat me. (laughs) Number six. A scientist and a teacher join forces to fight a race of killer Martians invading Earth. Oh, John, no! No, stop it, no, War of the Worlds. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) They don't really join forces. In fact, the the, the weird thing about that film, War of the Worlds, is no one actually ever does anything. No. They're essentially They're running around screaming and trying to fight things, and then nature takes its course. Yep. Mm -hmm. So there's there's two versions of that coming out at the moment, aren't there? There's the immersive experience in London. Yes, I've heard about this. Yes, it sounds Jules, amazing. Jules did it, I yeah. think, and said it highly recommended it. Mm. Nobody knows who Jules is. Jules Verne. Jules yeah. Verne, yes. Mm. Used H.E. Wells' time machine to travel mm-hmm. to 2019 to do the War of the Worlds. Mm. <laughs> Why well, he didn't take H.G. Wells with him, we'll never know. There's a TV series on its way as well, isn't there, which is going to be much closer to the H.G. Wells original. Like BBC set, One. Maybe is. set in England for a change. Mm. Yeah. Did you not see a play recently about the radio version? I did. It was very strange. It was, I really, really enjoyed it. But it was a play set in the present day about the repercussions caused to a family as a result of the panic caused by the War of the Worlds radio mm. broadcast. Really, really good. Mm. Okay, so Ian and Dan are getting away a little bit. They're on eight and you guys are on four, but still all to play for. <laughs> well, to be fair, I've known all of them, but there's a, there's a dysfunction between my brain and my mouth at the moment. <laughs> it's called six o'clock with Beverly, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Next one. A peaceful visitor from another planet oh. lands in... Exterminate. Exterminate had it first. The Day the Earth was still. Correct. Yeah, great movie, great movie. So One of the best all-time robots ever. 2008, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> 1951. Uh, 1951. <laughs> yeah, so the full, uh, the full plot. A, peace, a peaceful visitor from another planet lands in Washington, D.C., where a young widow helps him deliver an important message. The Keanu Reeves version is awful. It's not good. Clutu Baladu Niktu. Is that right? Klaatu. Yes. Klaatu. Which were used as the names for three of the skiff guards in Return of the Jedi on Jabba's sail barge. Uh-huh. Never mentioned in the film, but those are the names uh-huh. of those characters on their action figures. Klaatu, Barada and Nikto. Are you sure you're getting married? <laughs> I know, it's amazing, isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> film plot number eight. The son of an oppressive future society's ruler joins a working-class revolt incited by a mad scientist... Exterminate Metropolis. Yes. Correct. From mm. 1927. So you knew that because she was near the start of the book, didn't you? <laughs> it's on the front cover as well. I saw a version of that in Newcastle many years back with the Northern Symphonia playing live under Ooh. the movie, and it was just... It's an amazing movie. I mean, it still stands with them. It's 1929, and the, the special effects... Well, it's not just the special effects, because it's lots of cardboard, uh, but the sets are so huge. They keep finding more bits of the film... Mm. Because it was edited down quite significantly after its premiere, I think. And the footage was thought lost for a long, long time. And they keep finding little bits of it. Uh, so there's lots of different versions. And there's also the Giorgio Moroder version, the mid-80s one. Colorized where, as well. Yeah, they colorized it and put a Queen soundtrack on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
the uh, se- second best robot ever. C-3PO, I think, is very clearly... No, yeah. no, no. The, no. the original Ralph McQuarrie drawings of yeah. 3PO are very much mm-hmm. a well, version I, I thought of you were going to say he was the best robot ever. No. Oh, who was the best robot ever? Robbie, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right, we are all square. Oh, dear. Okay, two left to go. An experimental robotic child sets off on a quest to John, become... John, no. AI, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, sets out on a quest to become real when abandoned by his adoptive mother. This was the project picked up by Spielberg after Kubrick died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it was going to be Kubrick's um, last mm-hmm. project. Yeah. I remember AI being released in the cinemas, and I can recall all of the screens showing it having to put up a warning because it was the first film released after 9-11 to show an image of the Twin Towers mm-hmm. in New York. I can't remember how long after the event it came out, but they had to put these warnings in front of every screening in case people were traumatised or offended or otherwise by seeing the towers intact in a future-depicted yeah. world. Didn't some films CGI remove them? Certainly from trailers. Yeah. Um, Spider-Man CGI'd them out, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first Spider-Man trailer, which you don't see anymore for obvious reasons, was him doing some webbing between the Twin Towers mm-hmm. and some, I think, a helicopter getting caught in it or something. All right. This is the last question. But if need so, I do have a tie break. So if John and Peter get this one right, we go to tie break. If not, we have a clear winner. In the year 40,000, Earth sends a sexy female agent to a sinister planet. John, no! That was Barbarella. That is correct. (laughs) She's so fit. She is. (laughs) Oh, God, so sexy. The orgasmatron, I wish that existed. (laughs) There is a picture. (laughs) Just so sexy. I've seen the costume. The DNA Museum in London had the original costume from Barbarella. It's surprisingly skimpy. Was that the Hollywood costume exhibition? No, it was, no, it was um, Revolution or something, and it was about the 60s culture. So they had the, a lot of really cool stuff in there. They had the Beatles outfits from Sgt. Pepper. Wow. I just remembered um, on the note of sci-fi porn, do you, did you come with us, uh, Peter, all those years ago to see Fresh, Fresh <laughs> Do you want to rephrase that? <laughs> did, did you accompany me and a couple of us to the pictures to see Flesh Gordon? Uh, no. At the Odeon Cinema? No. I've seen that one it's at uni. Yeah. It's classic. <laughs> Though Barbarella is, I think, the first X film I ever saw. They showed it at school, believe it or not. <laughs> I don't quite know how we got into that, but yeah, you all know your classic sci-fi. Well done, Ian and Dan. A little bit more. Yay, what's Yay. our prize? Um, John, where's your sack? Oh, I don't know. It's, oh. it's somewhere in the house. I will locate my sack of fun. <laughs> I, 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 I know where it is. We don't want our prize. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we've got time for for this week's episode of the Nerdfest podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We are on Facebook and Twitter at Nerdfest UK. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Uh, until then, you've been listening to... Klaatu Barada Nikto. Oh, for A fully exterminated John Farthing. I'm Hazel Burton. <laughs> you sound like you're not sure. I'm Hazel Burton. Well, no, I'm just... I'm really sure. Do you have the thing on the new iPhones? Photos now just randomly comes up with you have a new memory and then a selection of photos from like a couple of yeah. years ago. Every time that comes up, I think I'm a replicant. <laughs> <laughs> we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.
You've, you're about five months lately. Oh, yeah, straight. I've been, <laughs> right, I've been very ill, but then I was better. Mm. And I attempted to turn up on time today, but uh, for some reason I couldn't. And I'll tell you why the reason is. Mm. We went out last night uh, to see This is Spinal Tap at the Tyneside Cinema. Well, quite a few of the people we knew hadn't seen it yet. And we had a lovely time watching the film, and it was very funny. And we had a few drinks afterwards. And then we went to Lady Grey's, which is a, a local libation station. And it got to about midnight. And I ordered a taxi home for Beverly, my partner, and I. I said, Bev, the taxi's two minutes away. She went, I'm not coming home. <laughs> I'm going to stay out for another drink. <laughs> I'll only be an hour or so. I thought to myself, well, it shuts at two, so you know, about half two, she'll be at home. Um, 6.15 this morning. <laughs> Bev falls through the front door. Having well, fallen out of my front door yeah. a few minutes earlier. Yeah. <laughs> See, uh, John and Louise uh, recently moved into the same street as us, just up the road, uh, which I thought was a good idea, but no, <laughs> really regretting it. It's all downhill from yeah. there. <sighs> 6.15, she fell through the front door, crawled on her hands and knees, up the stairs, undressing as she went. <laughs> <laughs> crawled into bed, went, I think I'm going to have a hangover. <laughs> and so all day today, it's just been constantly, oh, I feel terrible. Oh, I'm dying. Oh, oh we've got to go to Pontyland at 1.30 to look at some sofas. I had to take her in the car to Pontyland, which is uh, in the middle of nowhere, uh, uh, to look at some sofas. She went, I'm too ill to talk to them. Can you talk to them and arrange the sofas, please? <laughs> I organised that, got her back home, she went, I'm going to bed now. I was still asleep at half past one. And then, uh, and then uh, I was about to leave to come to the podcast and I heard this voice going, Sky TV's not working. I said, well, I can't do anything, but now I've got to go up the road to the podcast. She went, no, you can't. I've got to have my box sets. <laughs> so I had to phone Dubai <laughs> and get the man to help us re- re- rebuild the Sky system somehow. And so, yeah, etc. Long story, long. I'm late. I apologise. <laughs> and it's John's fault. I was on time. <laughs> you lived, you lived here. here. Yeah. 